Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and just a warning about the following interview. We had a bad phone connection, and so the audio is a little bit rough. But in any case, I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Good day, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, hosted by Thara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. The setting for what was perhaps the last important shake-up of colonial governance, the Government of India Act 1935. Our guest today is Professor Andrew Muldoon of the Metropolitan State College of Denver, Colorado, and he's going to be talking to us about his new book, which is all about the Government of India Act 1935. It's an act whose legacy endures yet. Around two-thirds of the constitution of modern India is based upon its provisions. And Andrew is going to be telling us about the people who were involved in it, not only directly in the drafting of the act or in that they would be under its purview, but also about the people for whom the act ended up challenging their ideas of empire and Britain's place in the world. Over to Andrew. Um, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Can you just start off by telling our listeners something about yourself and your academic career today? Sure. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm Andrew Muldoon, and I currently teach at Metropolitan State University in Denver, Colorado. And my major academic area of research is uh, uh, late imperial, uh, or you might say sort of late colonial uh, South Asia, uh, particularly the period of the 1920s, 30s, uh, and 1940s. Um, my background, briefly, is I uh, have a bachelor's degree from Tufts University, a master's degree from Cambridge University, and my PhD from Washington University in St. Louis. Wow, that's interesting. That would give anybody a complex. Um, so, uh, what kind of uh, research you normally do, and uh, you know, how did you come to the writing of this book? Well, I initially came to the writing of this book. My initial interest was in Anglo-Irish relations but then I was very interested in parallels between sort of Anglo-Irish and Anglo-Indian relations, uh, especially as I encountered work about the, um, the ways in which British colonial officials themselves attempted to compare Irish and Indian situations uh, from the early 20th century, especially regarding Bengal. I intended originally to write something that was a very high political history, but as I research. This book came together really in the archives. It came together as I researched and became aware of the various sort of cultural influences, um, 
structural problems of information gathering that were there within the British colonial state. And it became a combination of a political history and also an investigation of how, uh, you might say, political intelligence worked uh, in late colonial India. And it was, it was something that did evolve. The more I read the sources, the more I was very much interested in not just how people made decisions about uh, colonial policy for India, but also the context, the framework, the ideas that they had in their minds as they made these decisions. Um, so could you just tell us something about the book in a nutshell, you know, summarize it? Sure. Well, it's an attempt to look at the construction of the 1935 India Act, which was sort of uh, the penultimate British throw of the dice in an attempt to keep control of India by ceding uh, uh, provincial self-government and then uh, some form of federal centralized uh, government in which the British would still hold uh, really the, the key areas uh, of power. Um, my interest was originally how conservative party politicians in Britain persuaded a very dubious party membership to back this. And what I, what I discovered, in essence, was that uh, it was politicians informed by colonial officials and others in the, you might say, uh, colonial public, or what they would call in Britain the Indian public, who um, helped shape what sort of concessions would be made to Indian nationalism. And so my book is an investigation of political decision-making that led up to the 1935 India Act, and quite simply, what it was that led politicians, policymakers, colonial administrators uh, to believe that, in fact, this was a solution to the problem of Indian nationalism and that this would ensure the sort of stability of, or at least some sort of uh, uh, colonial uh, presence in South Asia for the foreseeable future. What specifically the Conservative Party? I mean, why would you? I mean, what was its relationship with the India Act as such? I mean, why would you choose to focus on that and maybe not some other British political view? Well, two reasons. First, they were the ones simply in power during uh, this period um, uh, between when the sort of formative decisions were made between 1924 and 29, and then as really the dominant partner in the national government, the coalition government from late 1931 onwards. And secondly, because they were the one political party out of the three major ones, Labour, Liberal, and uh, Conservative, they were the ones for whom India, and in a larger sense, empire, still uh, uh, loomed largest. It, that Those ideas loomed largest in their identity, in their construction of themselves as a political party, what they stood for. And it was, uh, in some senses, uh, really uh, only the Conservative Party in some sense, which, which felt it could take steps on India because uh, it uh, claimed sort of an authority over colonial knowledge and over, uh, you might say, sort of the, uh, the trusteeship of colonial rule. Uh, so that's why I focus on the Conservatives. Firstly, they were the ones making the policy. And secondly, they were the ones who, for whom this policy and the future of uh, uh, colonial, a uh, British colonial presence in South Asia, they were the ones for whom it mattered the most. Um, I think it still matters because I think they still have the stance that, uh, you know, they share maybe Indian values and think 
But uh, to go back to your earlier comment, um, you mentioned that it was a task for the Conservative Party leadership, you know, to actually convince, you know, most of the followers, okay, about the need to implement the act. So the point is, where was the leadership informed from and, you know, why were their views divergent from both of the party rank and file? Well, this was one of the things that became very interesting, was that the, the leadership, it, there became sort of a struggle over who actually knew what India was. Oftentimes, now this was a, a struggle which was fought out within a very sort of specific and limited context. That is, with those who opposed further concessions to India and those who supported them arguing within a very narrow frame of reference, which still treated South Asians as uh, politically immature, um, uh, lacking in sort of, as they called it, moral character or fiber to make political decisions, uh, that Indian politics was entirely based on uh, patronage, that Indian politics was both, was both uh, divided by religion and divided even by uh, caste and other sort of interest group divisions. So the, <clears throat> the decision was made that to do something that would attempt to sort of buy off Indian nationalism with the argument at least made privately among those who were in charge of forming colonial policy, the argument was made that you, uh, you could do this without risking, uh, or at least they thought, without risking uh, uh, anything uh, damaging to colonial rule because Indians in some senses couldn't take political responsibility. And so, and the information that informed that view tended to come from a very small group uh, many of whom had ties to the Conservative Party, whether it was viceroys, um, whether it was appointed governors in provinces um, like Bombay and uh, in um, uh, Bengal uh, or in Madras. Um, there was a very limited flow of information, and even the information that came from the supposed sources on the ground, that is, British district officials, police officials, um, uh, uh, sort of long-standing administrative types within the Indian civil service, they tended to, to basically work in a very sort of um, narrow context in which certain ideas sort of became almost sort of self-sustaining and also in which there was very limited, not limited necessarily, but but there was not full access to perhaps uh, uh, the realities of, of Indian nationalist politics. Um, when you mentioned the realities of Indian nationalist politics, do you mean to say that there was a, actually a strong push, you know, from the native side, from the Indian side, to actually, you know, draft this act in what would be, you know, seen as some sort of stepping stone to full autonomy? I mean, well, this is one of the things... That, Yes, I mean, there were, it's, it's part of my book deals with those who were not members of the Congress party, not with Nehru, Gandhi, and, and others, um, but in particular were members of a very small group, this sort of Indian liberal group, um, uh, in particular a lawyer named Tej Bahadur Sapru, um, who is a, was a constitutional lawyer, and an advocate, and someone who sort of reappears throughout the 20s and 30s, and even well into the 1940s as a mediator, um, uh, a publicist, uh, a, someone trying to sort of forge an agreement. And I think that he saw this proposal for a federal, a federal India as exactly that, as a stepping stone. 
something that once begun would inevitably move towards greater and greater um, self-government. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that he was, because he was not engaged in civil disobedience, because he was not in, a member of the Congress, he occupied this sort of middle ground. And he was, my argument is, and from my work in, in his papers and, and what he wrote and what he sort of commented on to other liberals, was that he, he saw himself as uniquely positioned to push the British towards constitutional reform, um, sort of from within. And he, his, I think that you can understand his position in particular in that he was, he and another lawyer, um, a Mumbai lawyer named Jayakar, uh, were the, um, they were sort of the go-betweens between the colonial administration and Gandhi and Nehru, particularly uh, Gandhi, when uh, Gandhi was imprisoned, when uh, Gandhi was fasting. Uh, Sapru and Jayakar were the ones who were sort of charged with going back and forth, and my argument is that Sapru realized that this gave him an enormous amount of influence, and that he could use this influence to, in some sense, shape British perceptions of what would result. Uh, and he believed that, that by keeping the British on the path to constitutional reform, by getting things actually passed through Parliament and written down, uh, that you would create this sort of momentum, almost this sort of you know inevitability about constitutional reform. Uh, he differed with Gandhi on many things, especially tactics. Um, but he wrote to Gandhi and and expressed to Gandhi several times that you know he held the same long-term vision for India, or at least for India politically, uh, that Gandhi did. So in the sense, it was very clear that ultimately the long-term vision, you know, did not include the British. Well, I think for, for Sapru, yes, the long-term vision ultimately did not include the British, but uh, it did include self-government and um, not the sort of, I mean, I think Sapru would have been absolutely fine with a, you know, a British governor general standing in sort of as, you know, Mountbatten eventually wound up, um, but not something like, I mean, he did not see the 1935 Act as a final stage. He saw that as, a, as part of a progression, simply because it continued to reserve to the Viceroy an enormous number of powers. Um, and... Uh, it, it's interesting that Sapru was a very much a proponent of this federal plan, and then, of course, probably about 13, 14 years later, Sapru was one of the people influential in sort of helping to shape the Indian Constitution, which relied very much upon this idea of uh, a federal India uh, and the balance of how the balance of powers would be sort of distributed between the federal center uh, and the states. Yeah, I was just going to ask him about federation. I mean, that is kind of interesting because it did give a lot of room for, you know, integrating what may perhaps have been reluctant entities. I mean, especially the princes, you mentioned the support of the federation. So, could you just elaborate a bit more on, you know, the federal provisions of the India Act? Sure. The federal provision was designed by the British to, in essence, serve as almost sort of an insurance policy against the Congress Party. It really was aimed against the Congress Party. The idea was that Indian provinces, provincial legislatures, would have autonomy, and um, with provincial governors enjoying a few special powers that might be employed in times of emergency, but other than that, provincial autonomy. But then these provinces would indirectly elect uh, representatives to a federal assembly 
but the provincial representatives would only be part of that and that there would also be um, a significant block of representatives from the Indian princely states who would not be elected but would be nominated by these, um, these various rulers, uh, with the idea being that through these nominees plus a significant number of reserved seats, uh, seats uh, especially reserved for Muslims, in the central legislature that there would be erected a, a block and that no matter how well a party like Congress did in the provinces, um, sort of structurally and institutionally, they would not be able to function as a, a, a central uh, uh, or in a central legislature. That, I mean, that was the idea. The idea was, behind the initial plan, was that Congress wouldn't even succeed in the provinces. I mean, there was great a great raft of predictions in 1936 and 1937 in a place like Madras that what was called the Justice Party in Madras would sweep the elections and the Congress and the Justice Party was absolutely decimated in the elections. Congress uh, 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 took the Madras Legislative Assembly quite easily and left British colonial officials wondering what exactly had happened because part of their idea was that Congress wouldn't win necessarily easy majorities uh, uh, anywhere. And then once they did, that meant that it was time to rethink just how effective even the Central Federation would be. But the Congress was anyway not very happy with the whole federal idea, I think. I mean, I would assume that they approached it with a certain reluctance because obviously these provisions were again, like, not very well received by, let's say, Gandhi or Nehru. And uh, yet, I mean, well, I think... They- no, I, sorry, I was just going to say that, I mean, it, it took some convincing in 1936 for both, uh, especially for Nehru, to participate in the provincial elections of 1937. He initially wasn't on board with them, um, and uh, he needed to be convinced by others in the sort of inner circle of Congress uh, that there existed the infrastructure and there existed the, the possibility of creating something national out of these provincial elections, which is, the, which is what they did, because they then came up with the, um, uh, the uh, All India Coordinating Committee, the, um, the sort of establishing a framework for making Congress now truly a national party. And I think Nehru needed some convincing of that, certainly. I think he initially thought it was, you know, perhaps, you know, participating in something that was kind of a sham. But once he realized that this gave him, or that this would give the party a sense of legitimacy, perhaps, by claiming victories in multiple provinces, uh, that, and something that the British weren't counting on. The British thought everything will be localized and uh, there will be no sort of uh, difficulties with this at all. In that case, would you say that it was a Congress victory, you know, despite the federal structure in the 1930s election that prompted them to include this feature when the main constitution was drafted? I mean, uh, what kind of a uh, role did let's say, people like Sapru and Jerker have in the drafting of the main constitution? Because federalism is obviously one of the most important carryover, you know, elements. Sure. Yep. Well, I think that I mean, someone like Sapru, uh, who died either I believe in 1950, but um, or maybe 51, uh, but he um, he helped to draft. Uh, at least sections of the Constitution, uh, as far as I know, uh, very influential. And he was a sort of, you know, uh, sort of by the late 1940s, he was one of these sort of Indian wise men, you might say, um, 
I mean, among other things, he acted for the defense in the INA trials in uh, November 1945 uh, in Delhi uh, with Nehru and others. But just sort of, he was there and was very influential in sort of shaping people's understandings of how a federal constitution would work. Um, in terms of which sections of the federation or the, the federal system that emerged out of the constitution he particularly embraced, I'm not sure. Uh, but um, I do know that he... Uh, believed in the federal idea as a sort of workable model. And I think also for for someone like Nehru, at least to some extent, that uh, part of the attraction uh, of, uh, or part of the rationale behind some of the decisions he made in the summer of 1947, spring-summer of 1947, did deal with the fact that there was, in essence, this blueprint in existence for you know, not a perfect blueprint by any stretch, but a blueprint for creating uh, a federal state. And uh, that the longer uh, that uh, sort of um, decisions were delayed and the, uh, the more negotiating you have to do, the more difficult this project would be. But at least, I think, in some senses, Nehru, by 1947, appreciated what the federal government meant, and in particular what it would mean for the future of Congress in terms of how a strong central government would really sort of benefit a government, a, a political party which controlled uh, that same central government. Um, that's something sorry to keep on harping about federalism, sure. but I was just wondering uh, what was the attitude of you know the governors of Bombay and Madras presidency? I mean, you know, this whole idea that the, these presidencies were historically you know distinct from let's say Bengal or the rest of India. So was there some kind of encouragement from the setups of these two provinces, you know, to actually incorporate the federal feature because they would themselves have more autonomy that way? You mean the governors themselves? Yeah, the governors and obviously the cadres, you know, the people who food. Well, I think that there was there was some hesitation among members of the Indian Civil Service. There was some hesitation among some of these governors. But, I mean, one of the things about these governors is that uh, many of them were political appointees not drawn out of the... ICS, but drawn out of the sort of the, the world of conservative party politics. And when you look at the governors Braburn in in uh, Bombay and uh, John Anderson in Bengal, just to name two, uh, you have two people who are largely plucked out of sort of conservative politics. We'll go back. Well, in the case of Anderson, we'll go back to conservative politics in the 1940s, and they toe the party line. Um, and the the other thing is that within the Indian civil service itself, there was not nearly the opposition to this plan that opponents of the plan back in Britain hoped for. That is, the I mean, the Indian civil service by the late 1930s was already engaged in the process of what was called Indianization, um, sort of the uh, expansion of the numbers of South Asians working in the Indian civil service. Um, there was a sense that that the uh, especially the younger generation in the Indian civil service that this was not a permanent posting for that this was not something where they were going to make their career uh, and so there was not the, the real opposition came from people who were former members of the Indian civil service who had retired to Britain 10 15 years previously uh, so I think that in the in the provinces because you have governors appointed through a political process based in Britain 
and you have a civil service which is in some senses in flux uh, that that there was not a lot of dramatic opposition there were still plenty of predictions as we could see in Madras with predictions uh, by the governor there and by uh, uh, by um, uh, other members of the ICS uh, as to what was going to happen in the election there there were still predictions um, but many of these governors uh, felt at least I think some obligation especially the governors in the sort of prize provinces like Bengal and Bombay um, felt some sort of obligation to stick with the political line that was coming um, from London. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, moving away from federalism now, um, now, when you're talking about the India Act, I mean, at least in modern India, I mean, it's always positioned as a sort of, you know, on a continuum, let's say, so you have the 1909 reforms, the 1919 reforms in the Government of India Act, and then the Independence Act. So, I mean, um, do you think that actually makes sense, or is it just, you know, uh, well, I think it makes some sense in the, the fact that the sort of from 1947 on, as we discussed, you know, so much of the, the framework laid out in the India Act is um, incorporated into the, um, the government of, of the Republic of India. Uh, <clears throat> so I think it's influential that way. I think it all, I think that the 1935 Act represents, in some senses, the final stage of a process which begins even in the 1890s with an attempt to appoint local, uh, appoint representatives to local councils, um, but to reserve seats when doing it and to, um, uh, in essence, begin to try and create blocks within the Indian uh, political scene. I think 1935 represents sort of the end of it because the framers of the 1935 Act came up so swiftly against or experienced so quickly, you might say, sort of the failure of their, their, if not the failure of their plan, at least a significant challenge to it because the provincial elections of 1937 so went against what had been predicted. And um, uh, again, with the notion that Congress uh, uh, was going to be governing in, uh, you know, either by themselves or in coalition, in I think eight different states, or eight different, excuse me, eight different provinces after 1937. Absolutely no one had anticipated that. And it, I think it, it changed the dynamics greatly, which makes, that's why I sort of say that 1935, the, the subtitle of my book is that the 1935 India Act is the last act of the Raj. In some senses, you know, uh, it's a pun, but in other senses, it, it, it is the last act of people imbued with a certain mindset about how they believe Indian politics works and Indian society works. And uh, 1937 demonstrates, to at least some degree, that their anticipations or their expectations uh, are not entirely uh, uh, well-founded. Um, so, could you just tell us something more about who were these people who drafted the act and what were the expectations, you know, where did they come from? Sure. Well, the drafting of the act was largely done in, uh, well, there are two ways. It was done through the India office back in, uh, in London, but also with consultation with various groups. There were a series of what were called roundtable conferences where various uh, uh, politicians from South Asia representing a variety of groups. There were three different roundtable conferences. You had the princes, you had people like Sapru, you had um, representatives of the Muslim League like Muhammad Ali Jinnah, you had um, uh, representatives of um, 
uh, various cast organizations, especially um, uh, Untouchables uh, with um, uh, B.R. Ambedkar uh, uh, present there. And you also had sort of this whole raft of civil servants who spent their lives drafting sort of legislation for, in, for India. And the plan was put together. One of the things that happened was that, that in essence, certain figures emerged as influential in, if not writing specific aspects of it, sort of providing advice and providing a sort of uh, reassurance that this kind of approach would work, uh, that, that this includes um, people like Sapru, it includes uh, the Viceroy from 1926 to 31, Lord Irwin, and it also includes a man named Malcolm Haley, who uh, was uh, a long-serving member of the Indian Civil Service, uh, had risen to become governor um, of the UP uh, by the mid-1930s, who was treated as this, you know, sort of, almost a sort of, you know, uh, a walking reference as to what would uh, what would work in India and what wouldn't. And Haley himself understood that, you know, he was really sort of the, the la- if people needed something absolutely sort of figured out, they'd say, well, ask Malcolm Haley. And uh, the idea that he sort of preserved the institutional memory of the Raj, as well as uh, a sense of how, it, how politics in South Asia worked. So over... Over time, there's a series of conferences and a series of proposals put forth for how put forth for how federation will work. Um, there is an enormous discussion about whether any mention of the word dominion will occur in the framing of the constitution or in the framing of this this act, and it is decided that it will not. Uh, much to the dismay, even of people like Sapru, that uh, mentioning dominion after 1931 conjured up ideas of basically self-rule. And um, there's some concern to insert various safeguards to ensure that you can't have a situation parallel with that in Ireland, where the um, Irish Free State in the 1930s began to basically undo its relationship with uh, London. Uh, so that there's a coming together. There are various negotiations made. Um, there are decisions made about what the franchise will be, who will vote, um, whether there will be reserved seats, uh, whether there will be reserved seats and separate electorates. Uh, in particular, you have in 1932 um, the, what's called the communal award, which is going to sort of frame how uh, uh, various groups will vote, which provides a separate electorate for Ambedkar and the untouchables, but which is opposed by Gandhi. And Gandhi himself goes on a fast. Uh, in protest, leaving Ambedkar, the colonial government, and, and even some allies of Gandhi, wondering as to what is going to happen. So it's it's a it's a drawn out process also because at every stage of these uh, of this framing, the conservative party, or the conservative party leadership, needs to bring it back to its party and gain approval or at least fend off any opposition. And they're very useful at that because they, they continually say, well, nothing is actually final and we can't discuss it. Well, it's you know, still in draft form. And they use you know, the word subjudice uh, uh, an enormous amount to sort of say, well, it's still under consideration. Therefore, we'll just have to pass on putting it to a vote until the absolute last moment in which they can basically 
structure a vote so that the Conservative Party approves, uh, the party membership approves of what they're doing. So how did the party membership approve finally? They did well, they did approve, and I think that what they demonstrate is the way in which the Conservative Party, in the 20th century really, is very good at managing its membership. And um, that it is, it, it's not necessarily that the party is a, such a hierarchical and uh, deferential organization, uh, but that uh, the Conservatives were very good, you might say, professional politicians. And... They were very good at framing the debate in certain ways, and especially in making a vote on Indian policy into, or, or giving it a larger meaning, that a vote on this was actually a vote on the leadership of someone like Stanley Baldwin, and that uh, uh, it was, uh, in essence, sort of challenging the conservatives and saying, just how much does India matter to you, that you will oppose this plan and saying, does it matter enough to potentially break apart this party and, heaven forbid, bring back labor? Uh, and they held out that sort of specter of uh, a resurgent labor party in 1934, 1935 uh, as sort of a way of keeping conservatives in line. It wasn't necessarily the conservatives were naturally deferential, but they had, in the leadership, even people like Neville Chamberlain, who, you know, whatever he became as a diplomat or as a sort of a foreign policy uh, 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 man, he was very well attuned to how the party worked internally and sort of what buttons you could push and how you could uh, sort of turn party opinion uh, by making questions not about policy, but about, in some senses, leadership and legitimacy and even personality. So, if you get this right, uh, the choice was between uh, getting Labour back into power or, um, you know, losing India in the sense that... Well, the, 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 the choice that was presented to the Conservative Party members was, it had several elements to it. The first, it said, this is the policy of the leadership. If you don't like it, and you vote against it, you will in essence be causing a leadership contest and a leadership crisis, which as it turns out, most conservatives wanted to avoid in 1934 and 1935. Um, secondly, they also argued that if you did this, if you voted against this policy, you would be losing India. They argued that this was, this was a way of holding on to India, of, you know, sort of giving India uh, some uh, greater aspects of, of political self-rule, but also keeping India within the empire, uh, keeping certain British interests safeguarded there. And so it was sort of, not necessarily a, a, a calling the bluff of the party, but it, it was this sort of two-pronged message which said, do you want to keep India and do you want to have our party fall apart and allow labor to come back in? And at a time, 1934, 1935, in which labor was rebuilding a little bit after the collapse of 1931, and especially uh, in local elections, um, uh, the Labor Party was beginning to gain back some ground. Uh, there, your average conservative party member, a uh, member of the conference who voted at the national union meetings, um, they didn't want to take any chances. And one of my arguments in the book is that 
for all the conservative party's devotion to the idea of empire, ultimately, when it came down to it, they were willing to put aside concerns about sort of future of empire when it, or, or if it might endanger conservative party uh, rule. And so they were willing to have at least a little bit of ideological flexibility. Yeah, that is explainable. I mean, you have the term something like keeping India within the empire. That's very ambiguous. It's not very well defined. So it could mean anything. It would be very different from the conservative position of maybe Curzon. So, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So anyway... Well, I was going to say that also that, that they also... Oh, sorry. I was just, I was just going to mention briefly that another thing that was raised to scare conservatives was the sense that if we don't do it now, if we don't make these concessions now, we're going to run the risk of another Ireland. And uh, there was much back and forth about whether Gandhi was the equivalent of Eamon de Valera in Ireland or whether, you know, sort of de Valera was the Irish Gandhi or something like that. Uh, so all of these things were trotted out in an, in an effort to keep conservative opinion in one sense, sort of, you know, on one side, and uh, uh, it worked. Um, so you mentioned something about institutional memory of the Raj, and that's what the bureaucrats drafting it wanted to keep alive, you know, uh, by drafting the act, and I would assume that was very much the goal of the party as well, you know, some sort of uh, continuing influence, maybe? Certainly a continuing influence, and they, I mean, the, the actual drafting of the act was, I mean, in some senses, it was an exercise in public relations with having consultations and roundtable conference meetings. Um, but it was, I mean, it was drafted very carefully uh, with one eye towards what was perceived to be sort of the political situation in India, but with another eye towards what was seen as sort of, you know, the ultimate sort of, uh, or what was seen as, you know, ultimately permissible within the conservative party. That's, there were some who wanted to say that this act included or forecast a future Indian dominion. Uh, but that was not in the final version because those who ran the Conservative Party said, you know, we, have, we can keep people on side with, as you say, an ambiguous phrase, keeping India within the empire. Uh, but once you start trotting out things like dominion, especially after what's happened in Ireland over the pre previous decade, uh, that's not going to fly. No, not really. And in fact, I was wondering about the act itself. I mean, 1935 and it's 12 years to, you know, transfer power. So, to what extent was the act actually implemented? Because you had the war and, and the ministries resigned, the Congress ministries. So, I mean, how was it implemented in full form? Well, it was never really implemented in full form. I mean, you, had, you get the provincial elections and then you have a lot of back and forth about when the next step will be taken. And... The war intervenes, as you said. Congress resigns the ministries in, in 1939. Um, uh, at the end of the war, uh, there are uh, uh, elections, but um, it's elections, uh, if I remember my sequence uh, correctly here, uh, it's uh, elections to uh, a, um, an assembly that will then, in some senses, frame a new constitution. Uh, that is, that, that, that even the, the 1935 Act is no longer really operable. Um, uh, you had, during the war, various proposals, the famous Scripps mission of 1942, which held out the idea that you know, India would become a dominion at the end of the war. Uh, uh, and uh, that immediately changed the framework, because 
by admitting that that was now possible, uh, that changed what the 1935 Act meant, because the 1935 Act had scrupulously avoided any mentioning of the word dominion. Uh, so, I mean, the elections that are called in uh, 1945 are um, very much uh, sort of based on the structure of the 1935 Act. Uh, excuse me, the elections called in 1946. Um, what you get, of course, is a much different distribution of the vote than existed in 1937, especially with you know the Muslim League increasing its share of the vote, especially its uh, share of the Muslim vote uh, enormously. And uh, so, the, so the 1935 Act, I think, probably provides the framework for those elections. But after that, um, it was then a sense of how is this situation going to be negotiated, rather than will this assembly or will an assembly uh, meet to decide it or is this something which party leaders are going to have to decide? I was wondering what the provisions of the working of the act have you know, formally suspended. I mean, like when you have a situation where the state government or the provincial government cannot really work, something akin to the emergency provisions in the modern constitution, sure. like the white yep. had certain overriding powers, so were these ever exercised during the law? Well... That's tough to say. I, I, I mean, because the ministries kept going. Um, they were, you know, because Congress, the, the Congress uh, members of the legislatures all resigned, uh, uh, or the Congress ministries, I should say, um, all resigned. But uh, in essence, the governors in the various provinces asked other parties, like, for example, the Muslim League, uh, to put together governments which could function and which would continue. And once you had, by late 42, early 1943, um, once you have the mass arrest of so many uh, Congress politicians and activists and, you know, members of these legislative assemblies, once you have that, you have, in essence, a system which keeps working, albeit in enormously restricted form. So it's not necessarily, I think, that, that uh, uh, emergency powers were declared. Uh, you might say that the biggest sort of demonstration of if not an emergency power, a reserve power, was the Viceroy's uh, declaration of war in September 1939 uh, without consultation with any of the provincial ministers at all. And uh, on the assumption that well, foreign policy was still within the purview of the Viceroy. Um, I think that's probably the biggest exercise of sort of unilateral power within this constitutional framework uh, uh, during the war. Well, I think they were pretty much entitled to, you know, exercise a unilateral power. I mean, it might not have been palatable, but it was perfectly legal, I guess. But, um, well, there was nothing, it wasn't this... Yeah, sure. Sorry, it wasn't, it wasn't that there was a question of the... Well, there wasn't a question of the legality, I think, or the constitutionality of the Viceroy's announcement in 1939. Um, it was more the, the, the politics of it and the sort of the... Um, the way in which it either didn't actually represent consultation or there was not even an effort to sort of create an illusion of consultation with uh, provincial ministries or with the Congress party itself. Okay, so um, obviously the Constitution was based on the Act, but uh, I would assume that in the drafting of the Constitution it was mainly, you know, the largely Indian Constituent Assembly 
so in the light of that what are the major differences between well the constitution and the act i mean in terms of provisions of governance you know not obviously in the political difference you mean what are sort of the the, the most substantive differences yeah yeah uh, constitutionally yeah well i mean i i think well in some senses there is um uh actually uh a stronger center you might say that emerges uh, after 1950 in the uh in the republic's constitution uh that is that that one of the things about the 1935 act was that it really did insist upon an enormous amount of provincial autonomy the idea being that it would get indians focused on sort of local politics or regional politics rather than national politics um whereas at least from my understanding of sort of indian constitutional uh law or the or sort of indian constitutional proceedings i think that uh in some senses there is uh there is a greater degree of centralization especially in areas like for example economic planning i think uh than uh existed under the um the 1935 act i mean the 1935 act was not framed by someone like nehru who believed that there ought to be you know sort of a uh not only a central government for political purposes but also for planning purposes uh so th- that is that you know the um there was going to still be an indian reserve bank uh and uh uh there was still going to be sort of uh, some centralized monetary policy and fiscal policy uh but not the direction of even you might say sort of provincial or local economies that would be written into the uh sort of structure of the constitution or the structure of the indian state you might say after 1950 so um, it's uh, interesting and uh, i actually some deporting further research uh, so would you be continuing with the uh, line or like what is your future research going to Well actually my my future is I've gone in sort of a different direction at least a little bit. Um I'm dealing with two things now that are kind of interrelated. Um one is actually the experiences of uh British and American and other imperial forces in India during the Second World War. And uh uh sort of looking in particular at their interactions with colonial society uh and especially sort of the ways in which people who come from you know come out from britain come from the united states come from sort of very you might say sort of non-colonial backgrounds how they interact with uh, uh colonial society um and also because the the war in south asia is uh in southeast asia uh, contains all sorts of of sort of strange sort of elements and contradictions for example the the way in which um the americans uh in continue to insist upon very strict segregation of the races in calcutta for their own troops and for their own troops on leave and things like that which sort of actually casts the colonial state in a slightly better light than the american uh, administration the attached to that is my other concern which is about refugees in south asia between 1939 and 19 45 that is not sort of refugees within south asia that is people moving back and forth within south asia but people who were sort of collected in south asia during the war 
and then uh, were in some cases almost sort of stateless at the end of the war. Um, I've done some work on and, and presented some research at conferences on, uh, in particular, the, uh, the situation that you had about 5,000 Polish, largely women and children, um, in, uh, uh, in and near Bombay at the end of the war, who were the families of soldiers who had been freed from Stalin's gulag to go fight once Hitler invaded in 1941. And that's what I'm sort of interested in. It, it's the ways in which various refugee populations emerge in uh, South Asia during the war and then where they go afterwards because there is a lot of sort of political maneuvering about people like these Poles in the sense that, that Britain doesn't want to take them, the Americans don't want to take them, uh, the Poles adamantly refuse to go back to the Soviet Union uh, or, or to the, their homes, which were in Poland, but which are now in the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's a very sort of interesting moment and I think very evocative of the position Britain finds itself in at the end of the war, in which it finds itself being faced with um, with living up to pledges and living up to sort of promises that it might have made during the war, but now actually needs to sort of pay off on. Uh, so that's my sort of two interrelated interests now. I've sort of shifted gears a little bit in the sense of um, moving away from sort of the political history uh, and moving much more towards sort of, you might say, sort of the social history and the, um, I don't know if you'd call it sort of, not necessarily the cultural history, but the sort of the, the social, the, uh, the economic, the, the wartime history of South Asia. So I'm... I'm very interested to see, I know that you were at Royal Holloway, and uh, I know that uh, Yasmin Khan is coming out with a book on wartime South Asia uh, sometime, sometime next year. So I'm very, I've, I've had one email correspondence with her just briefly about that. Um, but, um, so I'm very interested to see what she's going to come up with as well. Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, uh, I wasn't aware of her latest research, uh, but I'll definitely be keeping a track of that. Uh, there was just uh, one comment that I wanted to make. Uh, I mean, we've already taken up a lot of your time, but sure. uh, when last month you got this 1935 Act, and obviously it was heavily influenced by, you know, the wartime atmosphere. I mean, whether voluntarily or otherwise. But then you got the earlier reforms, let's say 1909, and then the 1919 reforms, they weren't really, like, you know, formulated in response to the situation that arose, like, during the First World War. I mean, is that uh, a correct assumption? That that the 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 that these were not necessarily sort of precursors to the 1935 Act. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Oh uh, no! In the sense that when you had the reforms in let's say 1909, and then you had the war, and obviously you had a political situation that arose because of the war, and that didn't really affect the formulating of the 1919 reforms very much. I mean, not just the war and the situation created by it. But uh, whereas you've got the 1935 Act, and uh, then you've got the war, then you've got the transfer of power, which was obviously, you know, hastened because of the war. And that actually kind of, well, pretty much was the end of the 1935 Act. So would you say that the Second World War, you know, in a way affected uh, colonial policy, you know, well, a lot more? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that had the war not occurred, I don't know exactly what would have happened in 1939, because... The, the the colonial government was beginning to backtrack about 
how to put together this central federal assembly. They uh, they were sort of very concerned. They were very concerned about what Congress could do. The princes were concerned. Um, the Muslim League was very concerned, and so. It, it, it sounds sort of odd to say that the Second World War solved a problem, but it, it, it certainly um, allowed for a, a diversion of attention away from what was becoming a very difficult political situation, which was, you know, what, when do you actually begin to implement the next step? And uh, the war served to basically freeze the 1935 Act in place. And... Um, of course, the circumstances of the war what, and, and the immediate aftermath of the war made it, you know, a template, made the 1935 Act, you know, sort of uh, something to be consulted for future constitutions, but not necessarily uh, something that was now operable in a post-war world. I think uh, that actually needs some more research on it. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network, and it was a pleasure having you with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Fox, a lovely podcast about the last major piece of legislation in British India and the people who were most deeply involved with it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.